A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, L, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T. Yeah, I know there was an extra L in there, but you're going to forgive me because you love me that much. Hello and welcome to PQRST, episode 40-something, the third episode in a row where I'm going to read several chapters of my baseball book, The Kid. But before I do, um, why did I start off singing the alphabet song to a Newsies reference? Well, I like, in fact, very much enjoy, kind of the same thing as like, just stay with me, uh, director's commentaries. That is when you buy a DVD or a Blu-ray and you can watch the movie and listen to the director or the director of photography or the cast or whoever talk about the film. And there are some really, really good ones. There's also some really, really terrible ones. Um, Do not recommend the director's commentary on U.S. Marshals, for example. In fact, I, I kind of don't recommend U.S. Marshals at all, but if you have the movie and you have it on DVD and you want to try a director's commentary, I don't recommend that one. Um, I want to give the director, whoever he was, some slack, because maybe he was busy, maybe he had moved on to other projects, maybe it had been a while, but all I know is that the guy is talking about his action movie, and 20 or so minutes in, as he gets done describing how they filmed the upside-down plane crash, suddenly he stops talking, and I'm not making this up. Another voice, lady's voice, comes on and says, If you would like to hear more commentary, please fast forward to 55 minutes or something to that effect. Basically, for whatever reason, and maybe it's a very good one, the guy had nothing to say about his own movie for better part of an hour. So that one is terrible. Uh, there are others. I, I should go back and try... Michael Burton, no, Tim Burton's uh, Batman commentary, because I went into it with admittedly really high expectations, and I recently listened to the commentary on Batman Returns, and that was pretty good. So, you know, having no expectation, maybe that improved the experience. But, forget about the ones that are terrible. Really good ones. Goonies, they got the cast back together, except for Sean Astin, who actually, Sean Astin even might have been part of it. Um, but he was also in the middle of the Lord of the Rings thing, so he he had to leave part way, or maybe he wasn't there at all. But anyway, the cast of the Goonies, telling stories, fantastic. Ocean's Eleven, Brad Pitt and Andy Garcia and Matt Damon, maybe? Anyway, uh, again, actors talking about the experience. Uh, there are really, really fantastic ones. And so, why I'm telling you this? Well, Newsies. Oh, before I go on, Return to Me. One of the funniest, Don Lake and Bonnie Hunt just having a blast. That is probably far and away the best director's commentary on one of the best movies ever that nobody went to see. So go get Return to Me, watch it, and then watch it again with the commentary. But I was talking about Newsies. Newsies, I recently listened to the commentary on that, and they... uh, Remind me one more note about commentaries, but I'll get to it. In fact, I'll end the podcast with one more note about commentaries. See if I remember. Newsies had a commentary, and one of the things I love about director's commentaries are the stories that they tell. How they shot a scene, maybe that's interesting. Whether, you know, when it looks like the actors are cold, but actually it's 100 degrees out and they had to fake it, that's more interesting. And then there are just the gems of stories. For example... The Newsies cast, to celebrate the release of the film, they took a cruise. Um, some island off the Catalinas, maybe, I don't know, somewhere. And the uh, guy running the boat says, hey, if you guys sing, we might see some dolphins. Because apparently, at least in this part of the water, 
dolphins are attracted to music. Maybe it's everywhere, but at least around here, they said, hey, if you sing, we might see some dolphins. And so the Newsies cast got together to sing. And can you just imagine those of us that love the Newsies soundtrack? Open the gates and seize the day. It would be an incredible moment if they were just singing. And according to the director's story, while they were singing, dolphins came up and circled the boat as the sun was setting. And I am kind of glad I wasn't there because it's probably not as magical in real life as it is in my head. I love the movie, I love the music, and I love the thought of that commentary. Um, And uh, if you can't get a commentary for a film, sometimes books about the film, for example, the uh, Princess Bride book that Carrie Elwes wrote, basically as good as a DVD commentary. In fact, it's better because in a commentary you only get the two hours of the movie, and he goes on for page after page after page. So another really great example, and why I bring up Princess Bride, it's not a commentary, but I recently read a book um, about screenwriting, and I'm not going to tell you who wrote it because it would ruin the story, but the screenwriter was talking about The Princess Bride. In fact, this writer was on the set of The Princess Bride. He was on the set of The Princess Bride in the fire swamp area while they were doing the scene where they light Buttercup's dress on fire. And Rob Reiner, the director, says, action, or go, or whatever it was he says, and Wesley and, and uh, Buttercup, you know, Carrie and, and Robin Wright are walking through, and suddenly her dress catches fire, and this writer, who's telling the story, shouts out, Oh no, her dress is on fire! Here's the thing, and this is why the story is wonderful. The guy that shouted that was William Goldman. William Goldman, who wrote The Princess Bride. William Goldman, who wrote the screenplay for The Princess Bride, and who was on set to enjoy the fact that they were making, finally, after like 30 years of development hell, they were finally making his baby, and her dress catches on fire, and William Goldman, who of all people on Earth should know that this was coming, shouts, Oh no, her dress is on fire! and ruins the take. That's just the sort of thing I love. I absolutely love that. He was so into the moment and wanted to believe that it was real, and apparently did somehow believe that it was real, that he felt he needed to say something, even though he wrote that scene and knew that the dress would catch fire and that the actress inside would be perfectly safe. It's like, uh, I mentioned this example before, but uh, listening to William Shatner's book on Leonard Nimoy about how Nimoy gave John Kennedy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, a ride to uh, the Senate House when he was a taxi driver and then had to chase him inside to get his fare. I just love stuff like that. And it's the sort of thing you hear on good DVD commentaries. So if you've got a couple hours to spare and a DVD of a movie you like and there's a commentary on it, give it a shot. Again, I will make one more mention of commentaries before this podcast ends. But meanwhile... I know what you've all been really excited about, of course, and that is The Kid, Chapter 2. Jason Stiller is facing down a 5 out of 7 situation, or he is not going to be welcome on the Boston Braves. Can he possibly get away with it? Um, By the way, one quick nit, you know, tell on myself. I've been describing the Boston Braves that this whole thing took place in uh, late 1930s. It's the 1940s. Not that that's going to make a big difference, given how much research I did historically, which is not all that much, but just in case it matters, it's actually 48 or 9. And uh, anyway, let's see what happens with Mr. Stiller, shall we? Chapter 2. From where he was standing, 
Francis Bud Triplehorn was ready for a fun ten minutes, which would be well spent in creating another story, building another piece onto his legend, and humiliating this wise cracking hayseed from no place. Not that Bud was an awful, heartless man, but he had made a living and a life out of his legend, out of being the shining star, the guardian angel of the National League certified since 1903 Boston Braves. Though every man on the team was important, he was the hero. He was up a step or three from the rest of them. And he was scared to death that somebody would stop talking about how good he still was after all these years and notice that he really wasn't quite as good anymore. Scared that someone would notice that he was slowing down. Just a little here and there, but still slowing down, quietly and inexorably. Somehow he had gotten through Pearl Harbor without a scratch, done his bit for his country without taking any serious harm for it, but there was no running from the inevitable curse of growing older, as hard as he tried. And he did try. He had to get a few more good years in, a few more chances at the brass ring called the World Series. And right in front of him was the perfect chance to turn everybody's attention away from his performance, turn the locker room talk further away from, how long can he keep this up? Turn it back to, did you see what he did this time? Bob Germain had slipped up, bringing this kid out with no experience or talent. DG had done the right thing, handing him the perfect chance to kill two birds with one stone, build his legend back up, and send the little kid packing, sadder but wiser. Bud Triplehorn was ready for battle, and thought maybe he'd even have some fun with the kid at first, let him tag a few, before sending him home. Jason didn't see any of this in his opponent's eyes, but whatever was coming, he was ready for it. The first pitch, however, he could have hit with his eyes closed. It was like Bud was pitching to his kids or the mayor or something. The baseball just quietly floated right down the middle of the plate, and Jason was so fired up, ready for a difficult hit, that he came out swinging hard and sent the ball sailing all the way over the fence. It was a home run, and that was enough for some murmurs of approval from the players behind him, but not a real achievement, and Jason knew it. Still, he heard the catcher's quiet voice behind and below him say, one for one. With a smirk, Bud wound up and threw again, and it was the same sort of easy pitch, and Jason sent it almost to the same place, though the ball fell short at the edge of the outfield fence. Two for two. Jason shot a look around. DG was frowning at his pitcher. Bob Germain was still playing poker by the dugout, no expression either way. The gathered braves were now making jokes, and Dutch Catan called towards the mound, You guys old army buddies, or what? When Jason looked back at the Braves' star pitcher, he saw the man's face change and knew their struggle was about to get more interesting. Well, so the hayseed had proven that he could hit nice, easy pitches. Thinking about it, Bud decided that he would pull out an old favorite for Mr. Stiller to play with, and that it was time to get serious. His knuckleball had been a comforting, if not constant, friend over the years, but that day it let him down. The pitch felt good, but didn't pan out. The ball flew so wide of home plate that Sammy didn't bother reaching for it. DG called, Ball one! There were more jokes coming from the team, from his pals, and now Bud found himself flushed and a little angry. Even the hayseed got into things, calling out from the plate, Hey buddy, I'm over here! Jason knew he had made a mistake the moment the words left his mouth. Without pausing, Bud wound up and chucked an angry fastball right at him, forcing him to jump back from the plate and lose his footing, landing hard on his seat in the dust. Nobody said a word. Jason stood up and knocked some of the dirt off his pants. 
found the slugger, and hefted it again. You okay, kid? D.G. was serious. Fine. Okay. That's ball two, Triplehorn. I don't think we want to see that again. Sorry, Deej. Bud spat in the dirt and considered his next move. Jason stepped up to the plate again, licking his lips and trying to read his opponent's eyes. The pitch was a sinker, and a perfect one. Jason swung at what he thought was a nice, straightforward pitch, and the ball dipped below his bat right at the last moment. Strike one! Two for three. Come on, pal. Sure that Bud wouldn't throw the same thing twice in a row, Jason watched and proved himself right. It was an excellent curveball that came sailing towards the plate, but there was a bat ready to meet it, and though the resulting pot fly would have made an easy out, it was still a hit. The newcomer looked at the team manager, but D.G. nodded. Before Sammy could inform the world, D.G. said, Three or four. That was a nice hit. Keep it up, kid. You're beginning to slightly impress me. Jason turned back to his task, wondering why in the world D.G. was so angry at him just because he had showed up. Three of four. Only five minutes had gone by, but it felt like an hour to everyone involved. Jay Stiller wiped his brow, tapped the slugger against his right shoe, and stepped up to the plate again. Bud stared him down and decided against another curveball. He was running out of options. Maybe another slider would catch the hayseed off guard. Four of five, Bud was yelling from the mound. Come on, Deej, that ball went foul. DG wasn't having any, and his temper hadn't receded now that he was both upset with Bud and starting, against his will, to think favorably of Jay Stiller. Sammy called it right, Bud. Four of five. Foul tip still a hit. You gonna beat this kid or not, Triplehorn? None of the Braves were joking now, and while Bud and DG had their little argument, most looked like they wanted to be elsewhere. Fun was fun, but this battle didn't make any sense. If the kid could hit, and he had already proved that, let him play. Dutch leaned over to Lefty, summing up what was running through more than one player's mind. Who's winning, exactly? Uh, it all depends on who you're rooting for. The kid? Bud? DG? So you don't know what's going on, either? Not a clue, Dutch. Bill Pickens was on Catan's other side. Sammy's rooting for the kid. I think I am, too. Lefty allowed. After a moment's thought, both Dutch and Bill agreed with him. Bud's nice to have around, Dutch whispered, but this new guy's already proved he's a crackerjack hitter. Don't we need one of those? Pickens laughed. <laughs> At least one. He raised his voice a little, showing the first sign of heart the Brames had seen from him in a while, even if it was only half-hearted. Hey, Stilla, you look all right. Dutch laughed out loud. <laughs> That's telling him, Pickens. He, too, yelled at home plate. Go for it, kid. You can pull this off. There were more shouts of encouragement as the brave realized that if this miracle was accomplished, they just might have a brighter chance for the upcoming season. Not to mention the fact that it was fun to see David square off against Goliath and at least keep swinging. Even DG had lost his frown. That's pretty close, kid. Closer than I thought you'd manage. From the mound... Thought you wanted me to beat this hayseed and get it over with, Muldowney. D.G. didn't miss the insult in what Bud had called him. You have my permission, Triplehorn, to go right ahead and beat him. We've been waiting for you to beat him for ten minutes. I'm not sure you can anymore. Now the comments were mixed, encouragement for the newcomer and razzing for the star pitcher. We still like you, Bud, but how about letting somebody new have a turn at stardom, huh? Give him a hat, kid. 
Jason found new courage as he listened to the encouragement of his heroes. Bud was anything but excited. Some of the comments about letting someone else be a star, those broadsides were coming a little too close to where he was vulnerable. He did a slow burn on the hayseed, staring him down, all the while rubbing his right thumb hard against a fresh ball as a broken eyelet on his batting glove nicked and marred the white horsehide. When he turned and launched the ball, it looked normal enough, and the baby swung. But even as he did so, Jason realized the ball was moving in a way he hadn't noticed. There was an extra stutter to the spin that pulled it just out of his reach as the bat came around. Strike two. Cat calls and go get him said both quieted. When Jason turned and prepared to argue with DG, everybody could hear it. He cheated. I'll give it a rest, kid. But he cheated. He... It's called scuffing, Mr. Stiller, and it's part of baseball. DG spoke over the kid's objections. I know it ain't legal, and if I catch him doing it more than four, five times in a game, I go out to the mound and we have a little chat. But I'm not going to baby you, boy, and I'm not going to make him play nice. If we keep you around, maybe you're going to face off against people that scuff the ball. You're going to face off against spitballs, against squeeze throws, against a ball with a blasted Roman candle stuck in the side, sparking and flashing and everything, and are you going to turn to me and beg for a second chance? Either you can hack it or you can't, kid. Now, I didn't think you'd hit a single one of his pitches, and you've proved me wrong. And I'm going to forgive you for that, because maybe I'm starting to like you a little. The manager of the Braves pointed at the pitcher's mount. He's got one chance left to beat you, and you've got one chance left to beat him, and maybe I'll keep you around even if you don't. But you can't count on that, can you? Maybe I think keeping my words more important than benefiting this team, which I now know you would, greatly, but maybe I'll be stubborn anyway if you lose, and send you packing back to those Iowa hayfields you wandered out of. D.G. ran out of words and breath at the same time and faced Jason for a long moment. When he spoke again, his tone was almost pleading, and a look had come into his eyes that Jason couldn't understand. One more chance, kid. So why don't you hit the ball already? They seemed to be finished, and Jay Stiller stepped away from the plate for a moment, looked to the west again, to where the sun was now in the midst of setting. Jason looked at the sunset and wanted so badly to be a part of the team, to wear the uniform and swing the bat and hear the crowds cheering him on. There were sudden tears in his eyes, but he scowled and blinked them far away and reached down deep within to find all of the courage and strength that he had. Then he turned back to the plate, tapped it twice with the bat for no particular reason, and rested the slugger on his shoulder. His eyes met the pitcher's eyes dead on, and Jason almost smiled, absolutely certain of what was coming. Bud Triplehorn was losing the battle. Even if this little hooligan missed, the kid would still probably get to stay, and everybody would remember what a good showing he made and how he showed up poor Francis as a washout. The star pitcher of the Boston Braves felt his own exalted status slipping as this baby-faced nobody kept swatting cards away from the bottom of his stack, and everything was going to crash down if he didn't win, and win big. On the mound, Bud Triplehorn relaxed, and almost smiled, despite the huge doubts that were whipping around inside him, because he still had one weapon left. His signature pitch, his ace in the hole the one skill on which most of his prestige, most of his glory, was still riding. Bud Triplehorn had a fastball. The funniest thing to the star pitcher was the fact that he knew, he knew everyone in the stadium was expecting it. 
the owner, the manager, the players, and even Mr. Jason Hayseed Stiller knew that there was a Bud Triplehorn signature fastball coming, and knowing about it, couldn't possibly prepare the kid for it. Sammy was looking edgy, and Bud knew he was thinking about the pennant race in 45, where a Bud Triplehorn signature fastball had actually broken one of his fingers through the glove. DG had unconsciously stepped back a pace, knowing without thinking about it that if the coming pitch went past or through Sammy, he was next in line. Bud Triplehorn locked eyes with Jason Stiller and almost pitied his opponent. Whether or not Jason got to play on the team wasn't so important anymore. Five of seven wasn't even important anymore. Only the last pitch mattered. There wasn't the slightest chance that the kid could win. Like he always did, Bud closed his eyes, reached inside himself past the fears, past the doubts, past everything to the deepest, darkest cavern within him where he kept his fastball chilling until called for. And not a sound broke the hush over the stadium. Nobody but Bud and Jason breathed as suddenly, like lightning, the pitcher reared back, twisted around, planted his left foot into the mound hard enough to leave a print, and threw! If it hadn't happened in front of twenty witnesses, nobody would ever have believed it. The red-stitched baseball whistled down the alley towards home plate faster than ever before, the most perfect strike Bud had ever thrown in his life. Except that right as the ball crossed home plate, it met a solid, wooden Louisville slugger heading the other way, and with a crack that echoed off the stadium's back wall, the bat shattered. When the dust cleared, when the Braves had blinked and looked again, they all saw the beginning of the legend as Jason Stiller stood quietly by home plate, a broken handle still firmly in his grip. A split second later, the ball, severely bruised and mistreated, bounced off of second base with a thonk. Sammy said, that's five hits, before what he had just seen registered in his brain. DG heard the crowd behind him chattering, amazed, and distantly he wondered how big the story would have grown by the time even a day had passed. The manager of the Braves knew that Bob Germain had granted his third wish. Looking over, D.G. saw the owner's smile, and though he was too shocked to smile himself, Dennis nodded and turned back to his newest player. He could think of nothing to say, but, gee whiz, boy, those bass caught's money. Jason kept a straight face. I'm sorry? That's all right, kid, it's all right. Let me have your gambling payoff when Sammy comes up with it, and we'll call it even. So that means I can stay? We had a deal, Jason, and you've satisfied my expectations. I sure as heck hope you can hit like that more often than this one time, though. Jason grinned. Count on it. The sun was just about set, and shadows stretched long across the field. For a moment, D.G. was distracted by this, and a saddened look crossed his face. But disappeared when he caught sight of Bud Triplehorn, his back turned to everyone, stalking away. Do yourself a favor, Mr. Stiller, he pointed. Stay far away from that man until he cools down. Uh, how long will that be? D.G. thought about it, and didn't know. He was spared having to say anything as most of the Braves came up to shake the hand of their new teammate and congratulate him on one of the finest displays the ballpark had ever seen. Suddenly the manager of the Braves found himself at the outside of the group, and for some reason that irritated him. But he felt himself older than such foolishness and simply turned away. Let the kid have his moment. They were few and far between as it was. Bob Germain was waiting. So he'll stay. It wasn't a question, but by then it didn't have to be. Of course. 
All right, then. Shall we try to meet tomorrow morning? Sure, Bob. Whatever. D.G. rubbed his face and felt old. He's really something. I told you. Have to fill me in on where you found him someday. Sure. Dennis felt a thought niggling around in the back of his manager's mind, but couldn't get a handle on it. Wait. Uh, Out of curiosity, does Mr. Stiller have a place to go to? Uh, Not in Massachusetts, came a voice from behind him. D.G. turned to see Jason, waiting patiently for further instructions, his well-wishers trailing off, already making the story bigger than it had been. Let me guess, Bob, he's not sleeping in your house. I don't think so, Dennis. D.G. nodded and was not surprised, or especially bothered. The Muldoney home had sheltered rookies before, and Gertrude would like the extra company. He sighed, though, just so Bob would know that he was put out. I suppose we can shove you into Hattie's old room. Shake a leg, Stiller. We'll be late for supper. Right behind you. Before he followed, however, Jason made a quick trip out past second base, and though D.G. lost him in the growing darkness, it was fairly easy to guess what the kid had picked up. By the way, Mr. Muldowney, he mentioned as he walked back, they were cornfields. What? Cornfields? Sure. They were uh, Iowa cornfields, not hayfields, that I wandered out of. He tossed his bat-shattering baseball into the air and caught it again with a quick snatch. The older man regarded the younger for a moment. Finally, shut your trap, boy, and let's get home. It's been a long day, and I'm an old man. While Jason grinned and ducked into the clubhouse to change into his street clothes, D.G. followed after more slowly, knowing how long the shadow had grown behind him, but not turning to look. Things settled into a normal pattern, like things usually do. Jason easily took to being part of the Boston Braves, though there was friction because Bob Germain would not stop treating him like a star instead of the rookie he was, despite his batting ability. Which, contrary to D.G.'s 2 a.m. nightmares, did not pale with time. Not that the Braves' newest and youngest player could hit everything, but he sure could hit a lot, and the excitement level, the buzz around the team, was double or more the usual. Everyone knew that their chances for success, for wins and pennants and the World Series, had taken a huge stride forward. Around the clubhouse, it was almost like the Manhattan Project. Everybody was so secretive about Jason Stiller. People who wandered by to catch batting practice were kept an eye on, and no comments were available for the few scant reporters that came on scene. The last thing anybody wanted was another team learning about the new secret weapon and finding a star hitter of their own, or luring Mr. Stiller away. Not that this feeling made a whole lot of sense, but it pervaded among the boys. D.G. kept an eye on the kid, pushing away his own quiet feelings of jealousy and envy so to better benefit his team, his players, and Jason Stiller, whom he was starting to like very much, despite himself. He didn't think all the attention would do the rookie a bit of good, and tried to encourage more of a normal perspective on things. However, on at least one point, Bob and Dennis were in agreement. There was no way Jason Stiller would be carrying a mitt. He was there for his batting abilities alone. Everybody on the team knew it. Jason himself had little problem with that, knowing that the batter's box had always had his name on it. Yet when batting practice was over and the team fanned out to work on fielding, he was left with little to do. Awed still by the heroes on the team, keeping his distance from Bud Dribblehorn, and still getting used to the idea of belonging, being a member of the Braves, it was fairly natural for Jason to develop a quiet friendship with a fellow rookie, 
And so when Phil Bryce was out in center field working on his catching and his throwing, Jason Stiller was usually sitting on the nearby grass or in the first row outfield bleachers. On April 12th of that year, just a few days before the first big game, the sunlight that filtered through the passing clouds found Jason Stiller sitting on the outfield grass, tweaking a grass stem between his teeth and wondering what finally playing in a real game would be like. He and Phil hadn't been saying much that morning. Not that there was anything wrong, but just because each was occupied with their own thoughts. Jason knew his friend was concerned about something. His fielding was the worst Jason had seen from the rookie, though Phil had impressed him and earned praise from DG before. Not that day. Errors, dropped balls, pop flies lost in the sun, even when the sun was behind a cloud. You okay, Goliath? The nickname Jason had bestowed upon Phil had evolved from a simple enough story to something that had to be constantly explained. How Jason had made a joke about Phil being short for Philistine and it had gone from there. It was a friend thing, and people usually figured it was a gag on the size of the rookie, which was nothing to write home about. Phil was feeling like no giant that day. I suppose I'm okay. From experience, Jason knew that Phil wouldn't just blurt out whatever was bothering him. Usually he would take the time to work it out of his friends, but Jason was restless that day and figured he knew where to stab. Afraid you'll make a fool of yourself in front of 13,000 people? He saw Phil wince from ten feet away. DG knows his baseball, and he knows his players. He wouldn't put you into the lineup if you couldn't hack it. Believe in yourself. I ain't trying to step on your toes, Jace. Phil put in a nice throw and sent the baseball he had been holding on a high arc to second base. But I'm sure that's pretty easy for you to say. Jason couldn't argue with that. Sure, I believe in me. It works, too. Give it a shot. The clouds were getting deeper and darker, and it smelled like things were soon to get wet. Right. Phil wanted to change the subject, and didn't think very hard about what he was saying. Not soon enough, anyway. You're starting to sound like my mother now. You know how mothers get... And then he remembered himself and broke off, but it was too late. The damage had been done. Without a word, the young man stood up, dusted off his pants, and started walking. Jason heard Phil calling after him, trying to apologize, but he didn't know how to explain that he wasn't mad, he wasn't hurt, but he didn't want to talk. He just had to move off, that was all. Just had to get some space. Lost in his thoughts, thinking of anything but what he needed to deal with, what he still hoped after all the years would go away if he ignored it long enough, Jason passed into the infield and walked by first base without really noticing it, headed for the dugout, maybe until for some reason he looked up at the grandstand. That was where he first saw her. And he stopped walking. The young lady was easily the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. She was standing at the railing above and behind the western stands, looking out at the field. Her simple and austere gray dress was of little interest, meant to be unnoticed, but she couldn't hide her face. Jason found himself staring at thick, shoulder-length brunette hair framing softly delicate features in which two most perfectly matched, excellently shaped, and deepest green eyes gazed out at the world. Jason also wondered if he had ever seen anybody look so sorrowful. D.G., standing near the dugout reading notes on a clipboard, looked up and noticed his rookie superstar staring off into space. "'What's the matter, kid? Need something to do?' Who's she? Now the manager of the Braves was intrigued. 
enough to at least turn around, and the older man made a surprised noise because he knew the girl in question, following that up with a sigh. Stiller thought he heard his manager say something like, My little coon, but he didn't ask. He merely walked over to where D.G. was standing and waited for the answer to his question. Dennis G. sighed again and looked over. You remember the guy who paid for you to get here? The one who bought me the train ticket and everything? Yeah, him. Sure. You're going to tell me she's related to Bob Germain somehow? D.G. had the best wry smile when he wanted. In a small way, his being her father and all. The smile disappeared as he wondered, Don't you know the Germains? At least a little? You remember the first day of spring training? The rest of my life, kid, yeah. That was the day I first met Bob Germain. Now Jason had his manager's full attention. You mean to say you came all the way out here without meeting anybody from the team? Just a letter asking me to come. Surprised me, too. I gotta get Bob to explain your presence here sometime. Make sure I'm there. I'll be a happy man. Jason looked up to where she was still standing, looking out at the field without really seeing it her expression unchanged. She's beautiful. So she is. Softly, as if to himself, though Jason still heard, D.G. whispered, She grew up when I wasn't looking. The young man continued to study the face of the young girl, wanting suddenly to be able to call it to mind, no matter where or when he was. And now that he thought about it again, Jason knew he had seen that look before, the look in her eyes. What is it that she's lost to look that sad? His manager didn't say anything at first. Jason was about to ask his question again when the reply finally came. Listen, Jason, you're a nice guy, but you expect a lot of people sometimes. Now, I figure if you don't know, it ain't my place to tell you. Let Raven tell you herself if she wants. Raven Germain? Yes, Jason. He filed the name away for further contemplation. Just then, for some reason, the beautiful lady stirred, as if awakening or losing her train of thought. She looked around the ballpark as if actually seeing it, and when her eyes fell on the two men standing watching her, her countenance softened perceptibly, though not coming anything close to a smile, when she saw the manager of the Braves. Then her gaze shifted to Jason, and immediately her face froze once more into a blank, untrusting sadness. Then she turned and disappeared. If he was hurt by the apparent rejection, Jason Stiller decided not to show it. Was it something I didn't say? She's been through some tough stuff, kid. You might be wise to leave her be. D.G. hadn't missed the rapture on the rookie's face. Last thing she needs is somebody hanging around making gushy, romantic faces at her. Plus, I might get sick. Dennis turned his back on the rookie and tried once again to get a handle on his work for the day. Jason was not one to give up easily. She's beautiful he said again. D.G. tapped his pencil against the clipboard and then spoke without turning. Kid? Mr. Muldowney? First of all, call me Deej, like everybody else. And secondly, about Raven. I know she's beautiful, but she's a lot more than that, and I won't stand to see anybody mistreating her. You understand? Of course. I'm not suggesting you're some sort of hooligan, but you'd be fighting the most uphill battle of your life, believe me, against Bob Germain as well as his daughter. Might be worth the fight. The manager of the Braves cast around in his mind for a way to make his point and settled on what was comfortable to him. Listen, Jason, even though you never spent any time on a real baseball team before, you still know what I mean if I talk about stretching a signal, a single into a double? 
Yes, sir, Mr. Muldowney, Jason chirruped, not quite mocking DG's insult to his baseball knowledge with the utmost naive sincerity. If you asked me to do that, why, I'd just have to figure you meant running real fast so that I could take a one-base hit, a grounder, and get two bases off it. Score one for the rookie. Here's what I'm trying to say. And now he turns to look his player straight in the eyes. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to turn, Ravens had, and I'm not saying it can't be turned. But listen, kid, when it comes to baseball, a lot of players out there are quick enough that they can stretch a single into a double. There's a few I know of that are so speedy, have so much heart to throw into the challenge that they can stretch a double into a triple. But not once, in the 37 years I've been a part of professional baseball, have I ever seen anybody try to stretch a triple into a home run and make it. Not once? Not once. Mr. Muldowney? What? Jason paused and looked up with a glint in his eye. How many tried? And D.G. laughed, slapping his knee with the clipboard. Somehow I knew, I just knew that was the question you were going to ask me, Stiller. I just knew it. Kid, you're all right. And then he turned away, still chuckling. And that was that. Jason left his manager's side and walked up the bleachers until he could stand where she had stood and look out at what she had been looking out at and wonder what she had seen. Chapter 3 Brave Surprise Takes Center Stage Braves Veto Senators Watch Out for the Kid The opening game for the Braves that season had them facing the Washington Senators, and that day the baseball-loving American public were favored with the sweet surprise the Boston Braves had successfully kept under wraps. That day America got wind of Jason Stiller. He didn't break any records, or any more bats, but when the game was over, he was rightfully credited with three home runs and three RBIs and a first-game rookie batting average of three twenty-seven, which was among the highest ever. Didn't break the record, but it did get a lot of people talking. The Boston Globe came up with the headline that said, Watch out for the kid! And the name stuck. By the end of that first glorious day, his manager, his owner, his fellow players, and the quickly enamored public were calling Jason Stiller their new star, the kid. But Triplehorn was not available for comment. Jason did make several new friends, however. After Dutch Catan pulled in the pop fly that called an end to the season opener and capped the Braves' win over the Senators, Jason was trotting with the rest of the players towards the dugout when a fairly strange sight caught his attention. There were plenty of new fans waving at him, trying to be noticed, but one immense middle-aged man down by the front rail was dressed like nothing Jason had ever seen. The man had on what looked like an ice cream vendor's uniform, his ensemble completed by an overlarge rainbow-colored beanie, complete with propeller, clapped atop his balding head. For no reason that he could really explain, perhaps the man's quiet grin, Jason decided that he could afford to say hello. The man was waving right at him, and seemed quite pleased to bend over and shake the star rookie's hand. His large new friend might have topped 300 pounds and looked quite tall, especially from Jason's position a few feet below the rail. But the voice that came out of the big man was surprisingly quiet and slow. It's really nice of you to say hello to me, Mr. Stiller. I really liked watching you play out there today. Jason smiled without thinking about it, as if the big man's grin had pulled one out of him unnoticed. Thank you. Call me Jason. I'm Earl. The patch on his uniform read Garve, but Jason didn't really think he needed to have it explained. 
but most folks just say, hi, Beanie. Beanie? Yes. The big man flicked at the propeller on his head and beamed happily. It was really nice watching you play today. You come to a lot of games, Beanie? Everyone. It's the one thing I do when I'm not working. Well, I'll keep my eye out for you. I'll say hello whenever I see you. Then the big man grinned, like to split his face wide open, and the smile on Jason's face was an even match. Oh, thank you very much. Be sure and take care of your fish, all right? Again, Jason figured explanations weren't really important. <laughs> I certainly will. Beanie turned and began to make his ponderous way up the steps. Jason watched him walk away and found himself still smiling. A voice called over his left shoulder. Beanie seems to like you. You were pretty nice to him. Well, he seemed like an okay sort of guy. Jason turned to see another smile, on a level with his this time, that belonged to a young man. Someone close to Jason's own age, quite probably. Good to meet you. The affable stranger shook his hand. Ah, uh, you don't know for certain that it's good to meet me, though, Mr. Stiller. Like I said to Beanie, my name's Jason. No, I'll take my chances. I'm Kip Gumbo. You're kidding. Yeah, and no. In an unconscious action that Jason would be very familiar with, Kip ran a hand through his shock of red hair, trying to get an unruly cowlick to stay put. It ain't the name I got at birth, but it's the one I write under. The stadium had begun to empty. Jason was hot and thirsty from the just-finished game, and he moved towards the cooler dugout, pulling Kip along with conversation. I think I can understand that. What do you write? Or should I say, who do you write for? Taking a seat next to the newest rookie star... Kip explained, oh, I guess both questions apply. I have a bit of the sports page in the Tribune. Just a few lines, but it's a start. Jason had realized why he liked this guy already. You're new to your job, just like I am to mine, aren't you? Pretty much. And I, I got no formal experience in this sort of thing. Also like me. Of course, don't look like writing comes as naturally to me as hitting a baseball does to you. When Jason waved this off, Kip persisted. You plan on hitting like that the rest of the season? Yeah, and many seasons to come. Oh, can I ask a favor? The question surprised Jason, but he shrugged his okay. Uh, it's just this. I'm trying to become a star where the trip is concerned, and I have a lot of catching up to do compared to these older, experienced sports writers. Uh, tell the truth, Jason. Kip shifted in his seat. I really can't believe my luck in talking to you first. You haven't been approached by any reporters? Not really. Several hung out during spring training, but nobody told him about me. Ugh, sheer luck. Sheer, amazing, seat of my corduroy pants luck. You may not be aware of this, Jason, but a lot of times big players, you know, important people in baseball, they have writers that they keep around most of the time. What, like a pet? Kip laughed. Yeah, well, sort of. If you want to look at it like that, they feed their pet sports writers the inside dope. Personal interviews, breaking news items... Sometimes letting them join the team on a road, bringing them into the clubhouse, you know, just because one of the players is taking a liking to him. Anybody can report how many home runs you made, how high your batting average is, every man stuff like that. I want to get the real scoop on Jason Stiller. Wow. Jason was suitably impressed. He thought about it for a minute, then he was still impressed. Listen, I like the idea, and if the powers that be will let me, I certainly would prefer somebody I can relate to more than just any schmo. But I've already caught a little guff from my manager because of how Robert Germain is treating me like royalty. So I'll have to get back to you. Kip stood. I can handle that. Just getting to your face is the best luck I've had in my entire life. 
If you decide something before the next game, you can reach me through the trib, or else I'll see you by the dugout railing. Deal? Jason laughed and stood also. Deal. I call the paper and ask for Kip Gumbo? That's the way to get a hold of me. If I can say that with a straight face. Hey, make all the fun you want. I can take it. Kip turned to climb the dugout steps, but before he did, something stopped him. What do you mean, being able to relate to me? Hey, it looks like neither you nor me really deserves the luck we've had. But we'll show them all, huh? We'll show them together, that we belong here and they can't put us down. Kip grinned about three quarters of the way around his head. Absolutely, me and you. Hey, see ya. You bet. Jason knew right away that he would give up any of his other privileges if he could keep, keep Kip around, and decided immediately to look into how and when reporters were allowed to be part of a baseball team. You finished? Turning, Jason saw his manager standing in the doorway that divided the dugout from the locker room. Yeah, uh, how long were you standing there? Ignoring the question, DG continued, Bob wants to take you out to supper, congratulate you on your first game and everything. Right, okay. Jason nodded, but didn't move. DG waited, then asked, just a little impatiently, Well, are you coming or not? What's going on, kid? The response was quiet. How did I do today? All right? Huh? DG was honestly surprised. You were responsible for six runs of our 10-7 to win today, and tomorrow the whole baseball-playing world is going to be talking about you. There are fans waiting up by the gates just hoping to see you walk by, and you want me to tell you how well you did? Jason chewed his lip for a moment. I don't care what they think. I mean, I care, but I want to know you thought I did okay, too. The sudden lack of confidence, or whatever it was, puzzled Dennis G. Muldowney, but he was hungry and decided he would figure things out another time. I'm glad to have you on my team, Stiller. You were an asset to the Boston Braves and a great help today. That suit you? Oh, very much, Mr. Muldowney. Thanks. The manager shook his head and left. Call me DG or Deej, kid, and come on already. We're keeping the Germains waiting. If he noticed how Jason Stiller's eyebrows shot up at the word Germains, DG didn't say anything. Sure enough, his manager had been right. Jason found several fans waiting for him when he came out of the stadium's side door, and he signed the first autographs of his life. D.G. watched and had to smile at the surprise on the kid's face. Enjoying yourself? Well, he said after the last young boy had run off waving his newly inscribed Braves pennant, I guess I am. That was kind of fun. You'll be sick of it by July, I promise. Clapping his youngest player on the back, D.G. led him towards the gleaming black limousine, besides which waited Robert and Raven Germain. Both of the Germains greeted Dennis with a polite friendliness but the way father and daughter paid their respects to Jason Stiller were as different as could be. Bob's face lit up, and he pumped his new star's hand in an uncharacteristic display of enthusiasm and joy, talking animatedly about Jason's great start, what an asset he was to the team, and how well the Braves were going to do that season. Then Bob turned to his daughter and introduced boy to girl. Jason couldn't help but stare into those eyes of deepest green, and she coldly let him not moving or speaking, until he said, That's very nice to meet you. Is it? The response was enough to dry up anything further Jason might have wanted to say, but he wasn't giving up that easily, and he didn't look away from her eyes. As the two were thusly locked together, Jason finally saw the faintest softening, 
as if something long suppressed and shunted aside was finally getting a quick chance to peek out into the world, in reward for him not giving up as quickly as most. For the briefest of moments, he saw a chink in the icy wall. Are we going to stand here all night, children? Bob was waiting by the door of the limousine, D.G. already seated inside. The moment was gone, and Raven turned away from him to step into the car, and he noticed in passing that she was wearing the same solemn, boring gray dress as the first time he had seen her. And though he tried all the way to the restaurant, she wouldn't meet his eyes again. Respectfully trying to keep his distance from her, Jason found himself next to his manager as the foursome left the limousine with the chauffeur and walked several pleasant sunset lit blocks to the restaurant. Hey, Mr. Muldowney, can I ask you something? You can if you call me Deej. The kid ignored this. Uh, it's just something I thought I saw at the beginning of the game. D.G. glanced idly through a shop window, and then wondered what he was looking for. What was that? You with your fingers in your ears. The resulting laughter from the manager of the Braves made the Germains, a few steps ahead, stop and look back. Jason looked at D.G., and not her, though he wanted to. Dennis had to wipe his eyes. You noticed that, did you? Apparently deciding that everything was okay, Raven and her father turned back. And had Jason been watching her, he would have seen her eyes shift to him for just a moment. D.G. clipped Jason on the shoulder. I suppose you didn't expect the high and mighty manager of the Boston Braves to stick his fingers in his ears during the national anthem, did you? No, I don't imagine that I did. Well, don't put me down as unpatriotic, kid. I'm as fond of the U.S. of A. as much as the next Joe. But that song, I don't know, it sets my teeth on edge. You have to be some sort of virtuoso just to hit all the notes, you follow? Pretty much. So before a game once, years and years ago, I put my fingers in my ears just as a joke. Wouldn't have meant much of anything, except we were supposed to lose that game by about a dozen runs, and instead we won, 14-3. to Really? Real as I'm standing here. He was actually walking, but Jason let it go. So from then on, every time that stupid song comes up, I do my best not to hear it. And you win every time, huh? Jason knew that wasn't true. Nah, we win a little over half the time, smart guy. But the way I figure, if all that looking foolish brought you out of the wheat fields to the Braves, it was worth the effort, no? Jason chewed this over. Then, they were cornfields and you're plum crazy. Ah, now I never did say I wasn't, did I? The manager of the Boston Braves looked at his star hitter and crossed his eyes while Jason held open the restaurant door for him. They were miles away from the stadium and an hour away from the game, and still several people recognized Jason and wanted his attention. Before he could get to the table, he had greeted several fans and signed several autographs. As they sat down, D.G. laughed, apparently at the evident embarrassment on his star hitter's face. Might as well get used to it. Hey, just see the headline of the Globe as we went by the newsstand? <laughs> said, watch out for the kid. I think you've been given a nickname, Mr. Stiller. Jason wrinkled his nose in an attempt to get at least a smile out of Raven. He failed. That's the silliest nickname I've ever heard of. What kind of tough baseball player walks around with people calling him a kid? The least deserving and wettest behind the ears, that's who. Deej raised his eyebrows and smiled, letting Jason know he wasn't really serious. At least you're the kid and not just a kid, so that's something. Right. A few minutes passed while the restaurateurs busied themselves with menus and orders, and when those had been taken, Jason asked D.G. about some of his past experiences with the Braves and how he had gotten involved with baseball. 
D.G. started in on some of the stories he had from years past as a manager, though he said nothing about before that as a player. The two slipped into a deep baseball discussion and left the Germains to their own devices. Since he had opportunity to speak with his daughter more or less alone, Robert turned to her, and if he noticed her poker face or the dark look in her bright eyes, he paid no attention. Dear, we've talked about your attitude when you're out in public, and how I would appreciate it if you would at least attempt to look happy with life. I'm not asking for cartwheels, but less frowning might be nice. He spoke seriously, believing himself to be in the right. And another thing, I've been meaning to speak to you about all this attitude we've seen from you lately. You know that the success of my team and my family are much the same. The public expects good things from both, and without the acceptance of the public, life becomes difficult quickly. It takes fans to put food on the table, Raven. Baseball is a luxury, not a necessity, and I don't want to give the people that care about the Braves, the Toms, Dicks, and Harrys that put their hard-earned insurance-selling dollars down on tickets and hot dogs and ball caps, I don't want to give them any reason to change their minds. Do you understand? They watch me, and they watch you too, sweetheart, and if they find reason to be uncomfortable, if it looks like we're not a happy family, they might go spend their money elsewhere. Raven said nothing. I know you love your old dad, and you don't want him to have money troubles. I know you're smart enough to see that somebody has to pay for the nice things, for your clothes, for your continuing education. Now she broke in, still looking away from the table and not at her father, and her voice was somehow both soft and brittle. I'm not going back to school. Excuse me? Robert Germain blinked. I'm not going back to school. I didn't take a leave of absence. I quit. An afterthought. The nice things that you've paid for are being sent along and should arrive by the end of the week. Now her father was becoming irritated. I thought we discussed this, that you... We haven't discussed anything in the past nine years, father. She almost choked on the word. You said, and I've done, and that was that. No more. You can order the chauffeur around, order the maid around, order your precious money-making baseball team around, but I have had it with your plans for my life. Her voice was getting louder, but she had stopped caring about propriety. Young lady, you and I both have an image to uphold. Then she looked straight at him, turning all the fury and pain of nine years on her father like burning green coals, trying somehow to get his attention for once, raising her voice, in fact, yelling, slamming her hand down on the table hard enough to make the place settings rattle, making one more desperate effort to finally get the man to notice her. I suppose I can't get away from being your daughter, but I'm not so young anymore, and I'm through with obedience. I'm through with your orders. Hire somebody else's child to make you look like a good father. Finished, she sat back in her seat, red and panting and disheveled, waiting for his reply. Her father laid a firm hand on his daughter's arm and spoke quietly. This is not the time or place for such a discussion. Dear, what would your mother think if she heard you talk to me this way? When Raven had begun talking loudly about quitting school, Jason had noticed and begun paying attention. Not that the whole room hadn't noticed when Raven began shouting, but he wasn't watching to see whether or not her father was getting angry, whether or not the tantrum was having any effect. He was watching her. He saw the gates come down while she let whoever was hurt inside rail against her father, and when she finished and waited for her father's answer, he saw the little girl. He saw the little girl who just wanted to be loved. Jason was watching her, not her father, when Robert Germain started talking about Raven's mother. 
and he saw the little girl go very pale and get yanked back inside where it was safe. The walls went back up, and the stony face came crashing back down. The little girl was gone. Then he realized that the little girl's father had just asked him a question. Uh, I'm sorry? Do you have a problem, Mr. Stiller? A problem? Now that the crisis was averted, Robert Germain looked much calmer. Everything could be kept under control. Is there a reason why you're staring at my daughter? Jason was caught off guard and looked down at the table, blushing a little. Uh, Not really, sir. For some reason, Bob didn't let it go. I don't know, Mr. Stiller, you were staring pretty hard, and it didn't look like just a normal reaction to a pretty girl. I ask again, do you have a problem? I'm sure I don't know what you mean, Jason denied. I guess I was thinking of something or other, but I'm sure the lady here doesn't really want me to share my two cents. He looked at Raven for some help. Robert also looked at his daughter, wondering what she would say. No, please, tell us. Now both of the Germains and D.G. were staring at him, and Jason's mouth was as dry as it had ever been. But he suddenly thought of the little frightened child he had just caught a glimpse of, and a fresh surge of reckless courage and anger flooded him. Well, nothing much, really. I was just sort of listening to you talking with your daughter, and I got the impression... He faltered, knowing about a dozen lines were about to be crossed. Uh, Just myself, but I thought maybe your words indicated that your love for your daughter depends on what she can provide for you. He coughed and took a sip of water, wondering when the next train left town. Robert took it in stride. I don't recall being answerable to you, Mr. Stiller. For the record, I love my daughter very much. Just like you, she has responsibilities. I only expect her to do her part. D.G. was trying to catch Jason's eye or kick him under the table, but the kid was too far away. But when Bob didn't rage against Jason calling him a bad father, the manager of the Braves eased back in his seat a little, thinking they might all survive the encounter. Then when Raven's father came back at Jason with a tripe about her having responsibilities, D.G. saw the kid's eyes tighten while his mouth formed a thin line. Here we go, the manager of the Braves said under his breath. Jason looked like he didn't care any longer whether he had a spot on Robert Germain's baseball team the next sunrise or not. Twisting a napkin in his fingers, he looked right back across the table at his boss. Yeah, that's the whole conditional love bit I was noticing. Just brought an old saying to mind, is all. Robert Germain looked very impassive, though D.G. had seen that look before and felt like hiding under the table. What saying would that be, pray tell? Jason didn't back down one inch. I don't imagine you've heard it before, sir. Uh, Confucius said, The superior man knows what is right, while the inferior man knows what will sell. D.G. had his eyes shut, wondering if the coming explosion would demolish the entire restaurant or just their table. But Bob's response, whatever it would have been, was forever silenced when Raven began to laugh. It wasn't any sort of pleasant sound. The girl was cackling over the description of her father as an inferior person, but just the emotion involved. Actually hearing the child laugh for the first time in ages took whatever her father had planned to say out of his mind. He looked at his daughter, wiping the tears from her eyes, and wondered for the hundredth time when he had lost control of her. Then he looked at his star player, his dream come true, and decided to let the comment pass. Call me what you will, Mr. Stiller, but since I not only pay your salary, but also for you to have the privilege of people asking for your autograph, perhaps a little respect is in order. The rookie looked contrite. Uh, Yes, sir. That was enough for Bob. 
He felt magnanimous and in control again. Eat your steak, kid. Don't forget who paid for it. An awkward silence reigned over the group for several minutes. Jason was wondering if there was anything he could possibly say that wouldn't be wrong when his manager started telling a joke. I don't know why this comes to mind exactly, but it seems like the sort of thing to tell. Bob, if you feel like flaying me too, I suppose I'll live. Apparently Robert Germain was still feeling peaceful about things because he let the comment go. Jason turns to hear his manager out, relieved that somebody else had the spotlight. Sure, and once upon a time and all that, there was this salesman who was very worried. He had to get a certain number of sales every month to keep his job, and it hadn't been the best month. Maybe he was trying to sell snow shovels in the middle of July, I don't know, but he wasn't making it. So this guy goes to bed one night really worried about his sales, right? Worried that he's going to lose his job. By now it was obviously a bad joke, and nobody at the table really cared how it was going to come out, but there was nothing better to hear, so they listened. He tosses and turns all night, has terrible dreams. Finally, he gets to sleep only to be awakened at six in the morning by this horrific knocking on his front door. The salesman tries to turn over and get back to sleep, but the knocking goes on and on, and he just has to get up and see what the matter is. He rushes down the hall and flings open the front door, shouting, What? Then he sees God standing there at his front door. Harold, God says, because the guy's name was Harold, you know. Harold, I just thought I'd come by and tell you that yesterday I made a list of everybody I thought I'd let into heaven. And everybody made it except you. I've sent them all on to heaven, and I'm leaving to join them. You're the last person alive on the face of the earth. Turn the lights off when you're done, will you? Well, Harold gets this shocked look on his face. All his blood drains down to his ankles, and he shouts, Oh, no! God's about to go back to heaven, but he waits a moment to see what Harold is so hepped about. Oh, no! Harold shouts again. How am I going to make my quota? Jason was only going to allow a smile in response to the joke, but when Mr. Germain said, in all seriousness, That wasn't the least bit funny, Dennis. He let himself laugh, after all. D.G. chuckled with his star hitter and looked across the table at Raven, and it looked like she wanted to laugh, too, if she could only remember how. Then and there, Dennis G. Muldowney felt terrible for the young lady that he hadn't paid enough attention to in years, perhaps not since what had happened to her mother, and he vowed that he would make an effort to befriend Raven, to talk to her and make time for her, however he could. But while D.G. was at heart a kind man, Raven Germain didn't have any direct correlation to the Boston Braves, and he had made such mental promises before. Jason Stiller would not have described himself as stubborn, despite what anybody else who had ever spent more than an hour with him would have to say. But he himself would always admit that when something got into his head, he went after it. Raven Germain was in his head. It really wasn't the soft, brunette cascade that swept past her shoulders, even the one cutest lock that kept slipping free to tickle her cheek, nor even the adorable way she pushed the lock back into place time and again unconsciously. It wasn't the indescribably beautiful pair of eyes that were attractive even when angry, even hard and piercing, and the young man could easily imagine looking into those eyes when they were open and inviting and deeper than deep. It wasn't her face or her voice or her hands, and it wasn't all of those put together either. Jason didn't know what it was, but he knew that if he didn't find a way somehow to break into that fortress and rescue the little girl inside, his life would never be complete. She let his stare go for a few minutes, 
But finally, when her father and Dennis were deep in conversation, as always talking about the blasted and bedeviled Boston Braves, Raven could stand it no longer. She spoke harshly, but quietly enough, that she didn't attract the attention of the older men. What is it that you want? Just to talk to you, she hissed. About what? His quiet look didn't waver. Anything. Her eyes bored into his, and Raven was surprised when he let her harsh, piercing look delve right into him, into soft brown eyes that were open, that more than matched her fortress of uncaring anger by their very vulnerability. She was allowed, if she wished, to see his heart, his fears, his self. No, Raven had to look away. She couldn't trust in that. She couldn't trust him any more than she could trust anyone, including herself. Just leave me alone, Mr. Stiller. Call me Jason. I don't want to call you anything. Why are you so standoffish? You already have enough friends? She looked away, wishing to be somewhere else, like she always did, no matter where she was. He continued, Lord knows I don't, and of the friends I do have, not a one has eyes as pretty as yours. Vaguely, Raven wondered how many times she had heard that, or something just like it, and suddenly felt tired and lonely and just angry, angry at the world and at herself and at everything and especially at this annoying little baseball player. Jason missed her signals. Look, Raven, there's got to be things we have in common, ways we can relate. Stop it! She hissed, but as she spoke, her voice grew louder. You want to befriend me? You're sure we have so many things in common? Raven gathered up all of the malice and frustration in her aching soul and blasted away at Jason with both barrels. I'm sure you're the life of the party in Nowheresville, but I don't care about you. I don't want to talk to you. You want to relate to my life? Fine. Did your mother die when you were a little kid? Was she murdered? Was it... And she almost broke down, but would not, would not let herself be so weak and helpless as to cry in public. Was it your fault? Raven Germain glared at Jason Stiller, wishing she could burn him with the flame of her eyes, even as she desperately longed for him to wrap his arms around her and tell her that everything would be okay. Relate to that if you can. Blinking away the idiotic tears that would not stop springing into her eyes, Raven realized that her father and Dennis were staring, as were people at surrounding tables. She looked back and found that Jason had ridden out the storm and was still there, still looking at her with caring, unguarded, beautiful brown eyes. I'm sorry, Raven. Her anger shifted to bitterness. Everybody usually is. The room was stifling, and the frank stares of everyone within earshot weren't helping. Raven pushed back from the table and stood up, apologizing softly because if she raised her voice, she knew she would sob aloud. Angry at herself, angry at Jason Stiller, angry at anything and everything, she stormed out of the restaurant, wishing that she could just die, and wondering what the joke was that she had to go on living. Bob hadn't been paying attention to what his daughter was saying, but he noticed when she got up and left. Still trying to understand what was going on, he watched Jason get up to go after her with no more than an excuse me, and then he was gone as well. He thought about it, but Raven had always been a level-headed girl. She probably just needed to walk off whatever was bothering her. He decided, again, to leave her alone. So, Dennis, what were you saying? The rain had stopped, but the streets still glistened, and she walked for several blocks, not seeing the reflection bouncing off the sidewalks. 
Raven's emotions were split down the middle, half of her wishing very much to be alone, and half of her wishing that someone would come after her. Her wishes came half true, and she heard his step behind her. She was standing next to a broken, unlit street lamp, looking up at the dark sky, letting the tears stream down her face even as she cursed them. Whoever had come to find her stood back, as if afraid to touch her, afraid she might break. She knew who it was. Her voice was just a whisper in the cold night. Why do you keep following me? Why do you keep running? She turned and looked at him, met those brown eyes again, daring him to take pity on her, daring him to treat her like a child, prepared to lash out at him if he did, even though deep inside she wanted him to. Raven, he began, and then stopped. And his face screwed up a bit, and she saw that he was also crying. I'm not chasing your beauty. I'm not chasing your pretty eyes. I'm not here because there's anything for me to gain. That look in your eyes, I know that look. You won't believe me, I'm sure, but to some extent, I know how you feel, how it hurts. If you're happy with who you are, with where your life is at, just tell me I'm a boring square and I'll leave you alone. I promise. She didn't move. But if you've never been able to deal with what happened to you, if you've never been able to talk about how you feel, it would be the happiest burden of my life just to listen. Her mind was whirling. The usual maelstrom of dark thoughts and bad memories now shot through with soft brown eyes and his gentle words. And she didn't know what to say. Jason's mouth quirked up at the corners, though Raven saw that he was still crying. How old were you? She didn't have to ask for clarification. There was only one thing he could mean. Thirteen. I was eleven. Raven looked at Jason and wondered. Well, I'm sorry. Everybody usually is. She heard her own words, and now, able to recognize the look on his face, even as he had read the look on hers, wondered who in his life had died, and how he had actually gotten past it, and who this unusually deep baseball player really was. But it wasn't time to ask. He seemed to understand, not pushing for a reply or a confession, just letting her think about being accepted, about somebody listening who understood. Then the black limousine pulled abreast of them both, and Robert Germain opened the door. Kids, it's getting late. Can you talk another time? Jason turned to her father, and his tears had gone away. A sure thing, Mr. Germain. He looked back at her and shrugged. Think about it. His tears had gone away, but she knew that they existed. With a nod, Raven stepped to the open door and climbed in with D.G. and her father. Robert Germain turned to look out the window again at his star hitter. You coming, kid? Jason thought about it and shook his head. Ah, it's a nice evening. I think I'd like to walk a while. I'll get a cab back to the Muldownies. Fine with me, son. Not like I haven't paid you enough for cab fare. But no getting into trouble, huh? Wouldn't dream of it, sir. Uh-huh. Robert sat back in his seat and tapped the glass so that Mickey would know to get underway. For a mile or so, the occupants of the Germain limousine entertained their own thoughts. Finally, however, Robert turned with a concerned sound to his daughter. Raven, dear, I know that you're concerned about propriety and doing the right thing. 
We haven't had to talk about this in a long time, but I just wanted to reiterate to you that I do not approve of your having close relationships with members of the baseball team. She wouldn't look at him, but of course she always listened. He knew that. It's not that they're bad fellows, and I must admit I like Mr. Stiller quite a bit. But it's not a good element for you, my dear, to be mixing with the hired hands and all. They have their place, and we have ours. I'm sure you'll scoff at me for saying it, but what would the fans think? How would the papers report a romance between my daughter and one of the Braves, however good his stats are? And then she turned to face him, and if there was emotion on her face, her father couldn't tell what it was. We were just talking. More to the point, he let me talk and actually listened. Robert smiled. Which is wonderful for you, I'm sure. As I said, darling, I know you were raised correctly and will make the right decision. Just think of what would be best for the family, for our futures, and I'm sure that will guide you. Okay? She turned back to the window without speaking. Ah, you don't have to reply. He who is silent is understood to consent. I'm glad that you and I can communicate so well. And with a satisfied sigh, Robert Germain looked out his own window, and the thoughts he had all to himself, none could have deduced. D.G. Muldowney sat across from the Germains, a silent and unnoticed witness to the conversation, and found himself wondering at the look he had seen in Raven's eyes when she got into the car. He hadn't thought about it much, to his shame, but in the seven years that had passed since Eleanor Germain had been killed, her only child had pulled farther and farther away from the world, until it was rare to even see her behind her emotionless mask. All the time she had spent in boarding schools and on fancy overseas vacations had made them fairly distant friends, but when he tried, D.G. could remember the cute, gap-toothed girl who had hung out by the dugout all the time, asking him questions on top of questions about baseball and life and everything else. D.G. remembered his little coon and then glanced at the beautiful and yet so distant woman sitting across from him, and found himself wondering at the look that had been in her eyes when she had entered the car. The look in her eyes that had disappeared when her father began talking about not dating baseball players. Thinking yet again that he should make a renewed effort to be a part of Raven's life, D.G. also turned a few thoughts towards the man his boss had become in the previous seven years, wondering where a fairly good man had gone away to. It was not the first time he had such thoughts, and it would not be the last. Jason walked for a long time. He thought about asking for help, but if he didn't bother God, God didn't bother him. So he walked, and thought of a million plans that wouldn't work to get her to like him, and walked, and tried not to think of how nice she smelled, and then he walked some more. Well, 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 well. So Jason might be uh, pretty hot stuff when he's behind home plate, but how are things going to turn out with the owner's daughter? Probably terribly, if I know my formula stories. But you'll have to come back in two weeks to hear more. I promised at the end of this podcast that I would tell you one more DVD commentary story. Here it is. If you've never seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, I highly encourage you to try to find it. It should be on YouTube. Might be on Netflix? Probably not. YouTube is probably the best place. But if you really um, are into cult classics and pop culture, and especially if you have seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog um, and enjoyed it, uh, Joss Whedon production, and that man can do very little wrong in my opinion, track down the DVD. Here's why. 
because on the DVD, not only do they have just a, your average everyday commentary made by the cast and crew, which is fantastic, they also have commentary, the musical. That's right, I said commentary, the musical. They went to the trouble of writing a musical commentary about the DVD that you're actually watching. And I cannot do it justice to describe it. The songs are hilarious and interesting, and the fact that they did this as fan service. I mean, the whole thing is fan service. What are the odds that, you know, this is going to really take off and be seen by millions of people? The blog itself, the, the Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, probably did not get the attention that it deserved, but the fact that they wrote a commentary musical to go along with it just for the people who happened to snag the DVD, Joss Whedon and company really love their fans. If you, have, if you enjoy just quirky, wry humor, or especially if you enjoy Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, find the DVD, listen to the musical. Maybe that's on YouTube, too. Lord knows somebody should have put it out there. Anyway, I'm going to go and uh, enjoy busy season. I will see you back here in two weeks for chapters... What are we doing next? For chapters four and probably five. See what happens with Jason Stiller and the National League Certified since 1903 Boston Braves. In the meantime, please, please, I'm begging you, own your stage. And we'll see you around in a little bit. But wait, you might be saying, there's more? Yes, there is. I really I recorded what you just heard yesterday and was prepared to make a podcast and was done with this podcast episode. And then I had a dream that I woke up to this morning and it was one of those times I have dreams almost every night and 99,000 out uh, 999 out of 10,000 it's just something stupid like uh, I can remember one recently where I was uh, having dinner with some friends from Seattle and Lauren Holly sorry that was Lauren Holly um, I don't know if it translated because my son just decided to be loud hi so anyway a lot of my dreams are pointless are just you know just dreams Every now and again, though, that one out of 10,000, it's like, I need to write this down. And for some reason, I feel I should share this with you. So, for whatever it's worth, um, my dream, I was back at the house that I grew up in, which I often, it's often a setting for my dreams, and I came to understand that there were these three goons, for lack of a better term, who they thought there was some buried treasure in the backyard of the house or hidden somewhere in the house, and whenever they could get me out of the way, they were searching, trying to find this treasure. And I, I don't even know if there was one or not. Um, I recall coming out and seeing a hole in the yard that they dug and thinking how upset my dad would be when he got home. Um, and anyway, there's, things were, were wrong, and these guys were scaring me. And here's the part that I was like, you know what? I'm going to share this with podcast listeners. I think to myself, I should call the dragon. And I look way up, like I had to lean back and look straight up in the air, and about a mile up in the air is a dragon flying overhead. And I don't know what I did, I don't remember, but somehow I call to him, and he comes down, and he lands gently in a corner of the backyard and sits on his haunches. The dragon, as I recall, was sort of reddish gold, um, which... I've heard that a lot of people don't dream in color. I have always, that I can recall, dreamed in color. And the dragon was reddish gold and sort of lit from within. There was this fire and lights were shifting inside him. 
and he listened to what I had to say. He came when I called, and not because I had any power over him, because he wanted to, but he listened to what I had to say. And the very first thing that I did was bow to him. I recall putting my head to the ground. I was bowing so low. And I told the dragon about the problem with the goons and the treasure, and I don't recall if he said anything. I don't recall that anything was resolved there. Um, and the dragon left and the dream progressed and when I woke up I had confronted the goons um, on the flagstones of the backyard and I had one of them I was like wrestling with him very ineffectually the reason why I wanted to write all that down besides the fact that it was a dragon dream I think that that was one of those dreams that really does mean something and it might not only just mean something for me but also for you I'll put it another way. I was I was worried in the dream about this treasure and were the guys going to find it? Were they going to hurt me to find it? What if they found it and I didn't? You know, the treasure was the important thing. Until I said to myself, let's call a dragon. And suddenly the dragon became the important thing. And uh, I said I was going to put it another way. If Bill Gates goes to pay for his Starbucks. You know, he's a Seattle guy. He probably... Starbucks, or let's say Seattle's Best Coffee. Bill Gates goes to pay for his Seattle's Best Coffee, and a $1,000 bill falls out of his wallet, and the wind catches it and blows it down the street. He probably doesn't care enough to chase after it. And if somebody said, oh, wow, a $1,000 bill, it might make their day, it might make their month. But for Bill Gates, who cares if he lost a $1,000 bill? And it's a clunky point, but suddenly when the dream became about the dragon, who cares if these goons find this buried treasure if they steal it from me what do i care i'm friends with a dragon and i somehow in the dream could sense that the dragon was very if not all powerful was very if not all knowledgeable and he cared about me we had a relationship so let him have the treasure um for me at least that dream was about priorities and what's really important in life so what if somebody cut me off so what if i lose a client so what if So what if I'm friends with a dragon? So, for what it's worth, there's a little postscript to the regular episode. I still want you to own your stage, and I hope that you will so do. And uh, we'll see you here in a little while.